Welcome to the Climate Torch Podcast. My name is Chris Wedding, and I'm your host. As a former private equity investor, startup founder, professor, impact banker, occasional monk, and founder of Entrepreneurs for Impact, I launched this podcast to share positive stories of CEOs, founders, and investors tackling climate change. In these interviews, you'll learn about their high-impact companies and investment strategies, successes and failures, career paths, habits and routines for productivity and health, and recommendations on favorite books, podcasts, tools, and more. Among all the climate doom and gloom out there, I hope these discussions offer some light in the darkness and perhaps a model for what we should be passing on to the next generation. In other words, a climate torch. All right, let's get started. Kentaro Kawamori, we are here with the Climate Torch. Glad to have you on, man. Thanks a lot for having me and uh, pronouncing my name in the very Japanese fashion. <laughs> so Kentaro or Kentaro is the uh, CEO and co-founder of Persephone. And we joked before pressing record that, you know, having lived in Japan a few years myself and, and Kentaro born there, I said, gosh, how do you say your name or how do folks say your name here in the States versus how I know they would say it back back in the motherland. Anyway, with, with your permission, Kentaro, great to have you on. And, and we're recording this, I think it's November 2nd. And what interesting timing, uh, as I was kind of watching the news, prepping for this and that, I thought, wait a second, I know that company. And I know Kentaro, and we're, we're, we're recording soon. And what an announcement. So maybe share, I'll say good news, mostly in quotation marks, because we also talked about that, but share the good news. And then let's get into what in the heck Persephone does, you know? Absolutely. We, uh, sorry, somebody just barged into my office. Of course, you would record a podcast and somebody would, uh, would barge into your office. So, you know, last week we announced a $101 million Series B round that was led by Prelude Ventures and TPG Rise Climate, which is the climate fund of, of course, a large private equity fund, TPG, based out of San Francisco. And, you know, as by our estimations, and according to PitchBook, it'll, it is the largest. Uh, funding round for a climate tech SaaS company in history. And as I tell everybody, it surely is a moment for celebration, but it also means we're just getting started. We got a lot more stuff to build. And uh, maybe that's a good segue into telling you what the heck it is we actually do. Yeah, I think just before you tell us what you do, I think this comment is instructive for the audience or a fun reminder for the audience. Raising money is great, but it's not the goal, right? The goal is is building a company. And, you know, we joke that on a similar thread when I was in private equity and we would make an investment and some folks would want to celebrate, a CEO would say, look, put on the brakes. We are not celebrating. When you make an investment, you celebrate when you have a successful return of that capital to, to the investors. And for you, I think your analogy was, look, it's a marathon, baby. And we're just at the, at the, at the station, which with, I think, was it um, oranges and and water, perhaps, to refresh yourself, yeah. Orange slices and water. Exactly right. I mean, you know, in, in America, especially, and, and more so globally, you know, we, we view these large funding rounds from the venture community as these massive kind of milestones of success and these massive moments for celebration. And I'm pretty vocal about this, right? I think when you're selling a part of your company and you're raising venture capital, it's important to remember you're signing up to deliver venture scale returns to your investors. And you know, what venture scale returns means, well, it used to mean somewhere in the ballpark of a 10x return for a great investment. 
But now the outcomes and the expectations are getting even larger. So I think there's investors looking for more than a 10x return. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, yeah, it's a special moment. It's it's incredibly validating from the market. It's, it's validating for our customers, but it's also validating first and foremost for me for the work that our team is doing. But yeah, it means you're signing up to build a lot more because if the plan was just to make a bunch of money in the short term, you'd sell the company. You wouldn't raise venture capital. You know, so so the Series B was was amazing because it means you know the market for the first time is validating our space and climate tech software is so nascent. We need more you know tier one return driven investors to come into the space to prove. Look, there are management teams out there. There are technologies out there that have venture scalability returns because that's going to unlock a lot more capital in the marketplace. But of course, in the short term, it means. We have a lot more capital to put to work to get more great people in the business, build better products, and have higher impact. That's well said as a leader, both you know, celebrate for your team, but also take stock of, of what lies ahead. All right, we've teased the listeners enough. Persephone's the company. What do you guys do? What makes you unique? So we are a SaaS company, venture-backed, of course, as we discovered. We're not even two years old. We started the company in January of last year. And we've built a platform that helps both operating companies and institutional investors calculate their carbon footprint and disclose that in a financial and regulatory manner. What does that mean? The core of our platform is a system of records built around a carbon accounting process. And essentially, we take in a huge swath of activity data. Now, that activity data could be you are FedEx and you're driving around a thousand vans per city. You are flying around airplanes. You're taking commercial air travel. You are Coca-Cola and you are distributing Coke cans around the world. All of those things produce activity data. We take that data and think of us almost like a, an ERP for carbon data. Turn that through the carbon accounting methodologies that exist. And in our world, that's the greenhouse gas protocol and come out with calculations that can be used, again, in, in highly auditable, regulatory and investor-grade carbon and climate disclosures. There's a lot to unpack there. I think one question I would pose is, from an investor's perspective, you, you could see where they would say, gosh, the landscape of carbon accounting broadly is, is so crowded. How do you all stand out from what I think many say it is a crowded, delightfully crowded, but crowded landscape? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point and one that we deal with every day when we talk to investors or potential investors. And as you develop further expertise in the realm of carbon accounting and disclosures, you realize it's actually not as concentrated of a field as people think it is. Now, over the last three to four months or so, it's become really in vogue for venture firms to publish out reporting on the carbon accounting space. But the space itself is so nascent, what most of them lack is sort of an in-depth expertise around carbon accounting methodologies and the differences between carbon accounting and sustainability reporting, two very different things. And you know, in our world, you can break that down then into carbon accounting methodologies and tools that can be sector specific. They can be the difference between product carbon footprint and a company's carbon footprint. We're very focused on the latter. And a great example of the former product carbon footprints is Logitech. I don't know what mic you're using to record right now, but if you had a Logitech mic and you buy a product from Logitech.com right now, on their packaging, you're actually going to see a carbon footprint number on that. 
And there's other companies like Procter & Gamble and Allbirds, who's IPOing this week, that are doing the same. They're calculating the footprint of their, their individual products. And that's a whole different class of carbon accounting software called LCA, or lifecycle analysis. You then simultaneously, if you look at the startup field in our world right now, you have a whole bunch of different approaches. You have some carbon accounting startups as they're being tagged that are more focused on very spend-based specific methodologies or selling offsets as part of what they do. You have others that want to be the QuickBooks of the space. And then you have us that's really focused on sort of the larger enterprise and financial institutional space. And so you know, you're seeing this sort of maturation of the carbon accounting market, which has historically been this really niche practice dominated by consultants, 100% spreadsheet driven. And you're seeing that very classic digital transformation happening, which is a rote manual process dominated by flat files, undergoing the digitization process into a platform first approach. And what comes out of the other end of that is a set of companies like us that can do this in a completely software-based model, and generally, you know, the rule of thumb in the SaaS business for us is if you want to disrupt a market or create a new one, it needs to be about 10 times more efficient and cost effective as the previous solutions. And so for us, you know, very targeted at sort of that disclosure grades um, output. You also commented on regulations as a driver. I wonder if you could say more about which regulations, which ones are here now, which ones are kind of being proposed slash threatened to large corporates. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the funnest pieces of the business for us. You know, we're engaged with policymakers around the world. Uh, of course, uh, actually, this week our chief sustainability officer is at COP26 meeting with regulators. Uh, he comes from the sustainability standards world. He was the CEO of GRI before. Next week, I'm there. Just in the last six months, we've advised Senator Weiner's office, who is sponsoring SB260 out of California, which is the state of California's carbon disclosure bill which will be back on the table in Q1 of next year. Two weeks ago, the Japanese Financial Services Authority, which is Japan's version of the SEC, announced that all 4,000 companies on the Tokyo Stock Exchange are going to be required to disclose their carbon footprint. 3,000 of them are going to be required to start doing it in April of next year. Like there's, there's just never been a regulatory disclosure requirement with so little lead time. You know, typically these guys are like, hey, we really want you to disclose this. Here's a two-year grace period. And then there's these escalating penalties. Everybody's just saying, you know what? Screw this. We need to get this regulation out. Two days ago, the UK Financial Conduct Authority, so their version of the SEC, announced 1,200 companies want to start doing it in April. So what you're witnessing is kind of the, the biggest compliance market, maybe ever in some respects, a, a lot of our investors, and we think so. But definitely since kind of data privacy regulation or Sarbanes-Oxley, but it's happening everywhere. Chairman Gensler from the SEC or domestically, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission, is on the record testifying to the House over the last few weeks. They're pushing out their climate disclosure regulation this year and next year. And at the SEC, if you're familiar with American securities law, they're actually going to require that to go into 10Ks, which means officers of those public companies are going to have to sign those and are legally and personally liable for what they're putting into those disclosures which is now going to spawn this massive industry around audit and compliance around those types of disclosures. And then kind of the white whale for us is, of course, the EU Commission. Uh, so Tim, again, our Chief Sustainability Officer, is, is actively part of the working group for their greater compliance uh, framework that they're pushing out next year. But really interestingly, I think people 
mix up the fact that Europe is culturally far ahead of the US in terms of sustainability. But from a regulatory standpoint, we're seeing actually the inverse. We're seeing Americans and a few other jurisdictions like Japan and the UK actually moving significantly faster than the EU. And there's some structural reasons for that. Those are big changes, no doubt, and thousands of companies that, ha- that need a solution, dot, 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 enter, <laughs> enter Persephone. Can you comment on the scope there, like as in like the real phrasing in, in the protocol, scope one or two or three? So w- when Japan or the UK or, or the SEC is saying, look, hey, companies that are listed, you need to disclose your, your carbon emissions, your, your GHG emissions. Are they including scope three, the hardest part? Are they not? What, what's that look like? Yeah, that's where you see the most variability in these frameworks. So in the U.S., for example, we do not expect that the SEC is going to require scope three disclosures. We think it'll be mostly focused on scope one and two, though that's not for sure. We see scope three as optional in some other frameworks. Right now, Japan is indicating that it'll be scope one through three. You know, there's a lot of structural issues behind the data estate of scope three reporting because you really then have to start getting into third-party data gathering rather than using what you have internally. And so that's some of the some of the pushback and some of the considerations from the regulators is, you know, is it even realistic for companies in the shorter term to be able to disclose on scope three? Because companies like us haven't haven't had enough time to innovate and push solutions to really drop that cost of reporting. Mm. That's generally the biggest pushback you'll see. And the reason scope three is so variable is because for example, domestically, the chambers of commerce and you know state and federal level are pushing back for their business constituents because they're worried about this you know really expensive new reporting process. And just for those listeners who don't live in this world, just define scope one, two, three, and why scope three so hard? Yeah, so scope one are emissions that are produced directly from the combustion of fuels generally. So if you are a consumer and you're driving a car around, you are you are combusting scope one emissions in your car if you're driving an internal combustion engine vehicle. The same thing goes true if you're a power company and you're operating a large coal plant. You're burning coal, you're cre- creating electricity. And that can be you know down the line from, again, those FedEx trucks that people are rolling around. Scope two emissions are really from the use of utility energy and other types of utilities. So if you're using electricity, which nearly everyone is on the planet, of course, there's still a fairly large amount of people that aren't, then you are consuming scope two electricity, which somebody else has produced the emission of. But there's other utilities that can fall into that bucket, like steam and heating and cooling type of utilities as well. And then scope three, you can think of basically any service or goods that are purchased or distributed. Now that's an insanely large number of things, right? Like looking behind you at your background, the sake bottle that we talked about earlier that you have in, in your frame, had to be produced by a glass maker. The label on it had to be produced by a paper maker. That, of course, had to came from trees. There's enormous heat in facilities that gets applied to mold glass to the shape that it's in. The rice has to be harvested. There's all of this supply chain of emissions that have to get created for the creation and then distribution of services and goods. And scope three is just this vast, you know, 15 subcategories of different types of emissions. For sure. Super important. It's got to be covered, but also super complex. So let's let's walk, jog, run, shall we? Exactly right. How about on on the funding topic again? You've mentioned the successful, you know, Series B last year, but a lot of folks listening are founders and looking to raise capital. Are there, I don't know, one or two tips you might share on what has made it a productive process for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think people 
that are looking to raise money in the early stages always have to find this balance of the concept of venture scale returns and how that plays into an investor's psyche, but also then realistic sort of provenance of what you're actually trying to go do. And what I mean by that is, if you think about approaching a traditional venture capitalist, they have to return 10x on that investment, right? The typical fund distribution for a VC is out of 10 deals, at least one needs to be a home run. So that means a 10x return. Another two need to at least produce a smaller return, generally on the scale of three to five X. And then the other seven can lose money. If you do that, the fund distribution means you're probably going to make money. And so what people are looking at in the early stages is generally a really strong product market fit. But if you're going in even earlier than that, people are betting on people, right? The greatest investors you'll see the greatest venture investors, at least, you'll hear oftentimes referred to as team and TAM investors. They say, I have this thesis on this big macro trend. So for us, sustainability and climate. And maybe their product isn't perfect. Maybe it's pretty good. Maybe they don't even have a product yet. But a lot of the greatest venture capitalists will say, we believe this is the team that understands this market. They understand customer pain points. They know technology. We know they'll build something. So you've got to figure out the style of investor you want to target. You want to figure out what are you working with? You working with a strong management team? Are you working with existing product, upcoming product? So it's a really, you know, sort of nondescript answer, I suppose, and that it depends, right? Uh, but I think that's kind of the name of the game. There isn't one single way to raise early stage capital, but there are a number of really tried and true ways to do it, depending on the variables that you're working with. I think you also gave a a, a fun, you know but instructive soundbite there too, right? Team and TAM. So you know, if, if you're looking to raise capital, make sure your team, both your existing team, your planned hires, your advisory board, et cetera, they're pretty damn convincing. And your TAM, your total addressable market, maybe now, or maybe it's what will come in three to five years, right during this investment period, is also very large and hopefully uh, untapped, right? A little blue ocean characteristics. Cool, that, that works. What about if you had to start over, uh, are there one or two tips you might, uh, I was going to say give yourself 10 years ago, but you're, you're not an old man, Kentaro. How about, let's just say, if you were starting over, some advice you might give yourself to go faster, be more effective, et cetera. Yeah, I think, you know, one of my good friends recently was telling me uh, what his uh, uncle once told him at the Thanksgiving dinner table as Thanksgiving is approaching here. I think he was 26, 27 at the time. He was uh, working at an investment bank, making a bunch of money for the first time. He was really boisterous. And his uncle sits him down and he gets really tired of how, how kind of confident and arrogant he was at that table. And he says, you know, you are ridiculous. You piss me off because you don't even know what you don't know. And I think that's an interesting sort of reflection point for me, because when I reflect on 10 years ago, a few years ago, and even today, I think, you know, a common characteristic for me is I tend to be fearless. So I, I tend to just not necessarily ignore risks, but I tend to be having a really high appetite for risk. And I would actually tell myself, do that, because when you continue doing that, maybe even lean in more, you know, what I've learned from the greatest entrepreneurs is by doing this, you're kind of you're a little bit of a maniac. Like you're going out and saying like, I see something that nobody else sees and I'm the person to go figure this out. And you have to have a sense of fearlessness. And so I would, I would say lean into that, you know, if entrepreneurship is in the cards. And, and for me, I always knew that was the path I was going to take. 
I think the other big piece of advice is uh, relationships, right? I think earlier in my career, I did not value relationships as much as I did because I was the, the young whippersnapper who, you know, thought competence and knowledge and, and those things would carry you farther. But, you know, in business and in life, you know, it's that very old school mentality that relationships are everything. And that's, you know, especially in our, per, in our journey with Persephone, that's proven true a thousand times over. And every day I'm super grateful for the relationships that I have. And so I think maybe more pointedly, I would say, be more grateful for the relationships you build along the way and, and make sure you're, you're really focusing on experiencing that versus, you know, just always focused on the outcome. That reminds me of, I think it's an African proverb. I'm sure I'll butcher it, but something like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, right, go, go with others, something, something like this. Oh, but you know, to, to, to the point of relationships, right? Uh, clearly, you're building a good team there to have this kind of traction in such a, such a short period of time. Let's go outside your current business for a second. And if you had to pick another climate or sustainability problem to work on with, with also with big, you know, kind of business potential, what might that look like? You know, I spent a little bit of time in the energy industry. And, you know, one of the, uh, the things I'm most intrigued about today is hydrogen and portable high efficiency, powerful sources of energy, right? I think when you work in the energy for a little bit, it, it really teaches you that, you know, access to energy, much like capital in the financial markets, is sort of the cornerstone for all economic development. And as we're going through this energy transition, I mean, it is truly, you know, the first industrial revolution that any of us will live through in our lifetimes. It's clear if you follow the science that hydrogen has to be a part of the future equation, short of you know brand new fuel sources getting getting discovered, um, and the the tie-ins between renewable energy and fossil-based energies into fossil production and existing technologies for transportation and distribution super super fascinating for me. This year, actually, on the the first time I'm on the judging panel for the Forbes 30 Under 30 Energy list, and I saw just an amazing amount of entrepreneurs and innovation happening in the hydrogen space going through that process. And it, uh, it definitely made me envious of being at the very early stages of sort of what I believe will just be a massively breakthrough sort of technology development for the world. I like that. Well, I mean, first of all, the Forbes 30 into 30, you're also on that list, another fun, another fun accolade. And cool to be, to be judging or having the chance to, you know, like promote others to that list, which, which, Look, it helps. It's another feather in folks' cap to get traction, right? We have several Forbes 30 under 30 CEOs in our climate masterminds, and they're, you know, they're rocket ships, right? Just, just like you are as well. Switching from business, uh, Kentaro, to the next half of the podcast on more the personal side, are there habits or routines that keep you focused, healthy, and sane? Think, you know, meditations, exercise, productivity hacks, et cetera. Absolutely. Family is huge for me. You know, I go from the crazy hustle and bustle of fundraising, building a startup to a two and a half year old daughter at home that keeps me grounded in a way that only a two, having a two and a half year old daughter can. You've got kids, you know exactly yep. what I'm talking about. Because your kid doesn't care what you did all day. They just want to play and hang out. And uh, there's some magic behind that, which is, which I'm super grateful for. You know, definitely my wife as well, right? We, we just don't bring our work home. We, we just act as a family unit. And, and keeping, keeping grounded and sort of an anchor point on, on having that perspective, what's most important for life is really critical for me. 
Um, health and well-being, I'm like just super obsessed with productivity and efficiency. And so, you know, I work a lot of hours like all entrepreneurs do, but for me, it's all about the efficiency of those hours. So if I'm clocking even slightly less sleep than I would want to, oh man, I'm going to shift my schedule to make sure that I'm doing, you know, stuff that I can be lower efficiency on uh, versus higher efficiency. And I'm, I spend way too much time and money on this. Like I, I have a whoop. If you have that wearable, mm-hmm. I track mm-hmm. my sleep like crazy. I'm religious about putting my sleep habits into the app. I just got an eight sleep. If you have, if you've heard of that, which is this amazing, like AI powered mattress cover that will regulate your temperature throughout the night. And so like, if I can eke out even two or 3% more effectiveness on my sleep, I'm all about it. And then exercise as well. So I like to play tennis. I like to lift weights. Um, you know, so staying physically healthy is, is super, super important for my sort of mental well-being and, and being productive at work. And then maybe the last one is uh, I'm an absolute glutton for information. I mean, I can consume and read for, you know, days on end, uh, podcasts, you know, audio books. I'm just always consuming new information. And, and that's been a, a cornerstone habit of mine that's, uh, that's been really productive for me. Those are all, I think, great, you know, practical takeaways for listeners. I just wrote down notes as I'm shaking my head in agreement with you. I mean, the family, the family side, I was having a, a little campfire in our front yard with our two youngest kids, uh, age 10 and 13, and, you know, telling stories and eating s'mores, or at least they're eating s'mores. And I just paused and I was like, man, kids, sometimes life seems so easy, you know, like right now, like what more is there to life, right? On, on the whoop, I was literally just last night researching the whoop and I was like, I was like, oh, it's free. Oh, wait a second. This is the razors and razor blade model, I think. Anyway, uh, it, it does look very tantalizing and I, I may I may splurge. Uh, one of our other uh, CEO mastermind members is a big fan. And as he was describing how it compiles all these different kind of biometrics into one measure of like, I forget the, the adjectives it uses, but essentially it's green, yellow, and then and then red to let you know, like, are you on the upswing? Are you are you coasting? Are you on the on the downswing? To help you figure out, like, oh, well, I, I really should be resting, or I should be more cognizant how my biology may be affecting my behavior around my loved ones, for example. Anyway, so I'm I'm on the fence. We can talk about that. I'll send you yeah. my referral link. We'll get you off that fence. There you go. It's a must-have, and it is okay. super addicting. Nice. I like it. And the, the last one on, on a, a sponge for information, couldn't agree more. And I'll, I'll share this weekend, I have for the first time in 17 years since our son was born, I'm taking a three-day, probably silent, you can call it a retreat, maybe, but in, in, the, in the mountains, n- north of Boone, little hermit's cabin on a pond, a slight, a small version of like, you know, the Bill Gates Read Week or whatever he calls that. Plus a bunch of meditation and hiking. I just, I can't wait. I'll, I'll send you cliff notes when I'm, <laughs> when I'm done. But anyway. Sounds incredible. That's like every, uh, every beach vacation I have with my wife, she gets mad at me because all I want to do is sit on the beach and read cheesy space operas. Nice. There are more threads to pull on with that one, but let's, <laughs> and it, it actually, it does kind of tie to the next one, which is recommendations you might have for listeners on books uh, podcasts, tools, etc. They don't need to be business or climate related. They can be, but also don't have to be. Yeah, I think let's do maybe three books, three podcasts. Um, so one of my favorite genres of books are what I would call 
corporate biographies. I don't know if that's actually the segment, but you know, books that are chronicling the journey of a company, sometimes through the eyes of the founder or just the company in general. Three that are, have been some of my favorites is uh, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, which is about uh, Pixar and the culture they built and the business they built. Another one is No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings, which is all about the Netflix sort of cultural philosophy. But I think most importantly, it's about Netflix's secret weapon, which is reinvention, uh, you know, going from the mail-in DVD business to a streaming giant to now Hollywood production company. Uh, and then the third is uh, Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger, who was the longtime CEO of Disney and oversaw, you know, massive transformation and made bets like buying Lucasfilms and Pixar and, you know, at the time seemed super controversial and uh, is just a, a, one of the great CEOs of our time. Um, so those are three books, three podcasts, uh, Columbia Energy Exchange, probably for this audience. If you haven't listened to it, it's a must listen. It's uh, by Jason Bordoff, the, uh, the dean of the Columbia Climate School. Excellent economic and macroeconomic analysis around energy transition. I mean, super, super informative. I don't think you can pack more high quality information per minute on any other podcast besides, of course, Climate Torch. Clearly, uh, clearly. Clearly, yeah. clearly uh, on the topic. And then uh, two other favorites, if you are if you like VC, if you like startups, the 20 Minute VC by Harry Stebbings is a must have. The guy is prolific. I mean, he's mm -hmm. on like podcast number 3,800 or something. He's launched it into being a GP. I mean, mm -hmm. he's done something incredible. Uh, and then lastly, one of my recent favorites is a series called Acquired, also a podcast by Ben Gilbert and David Rosenthal which they do these like one to like four hour readings of just iconic companies and, and kind of how those companies came to be. And they're older companies, think like TSMC and Standard Oil. And they just do this fascinating research and storytelling around why those companies became as influential as they did. That's a super detailed list, Kentaro, and I, I would expect nothing less based on our, <laughs> our conversation so far. We'll, we'll obviously have links uh, to those books uh, in the transcript. The second to last question here is kind of far out there, de deviating from the others, but a, a fun one I picked up from the Invest Like the Best podcast or a variation. What is one of the nicest things that anyone's ever done for you outside, of course, of your family? Easy one. Uh, so one of my co-founders, Jason Offerman, just you know ripped up his life and moved his whole family from Oklahoma to Tempe in the earliest of days and and joined me to, to start this business. And you know, I mean, you heard me say it earlier, you have to be a bit of a maniac to, you know, start a business at the early stage with no products, you know, no investment, nothing. And, you know, having a partner that can do that with you in the earliest of days and can share that vision and is supportive all the way, I would absolutely characterize as one of the nicest things anybody could have possibly done for me because the sacrifice and the, the challenges of doing that, you know, are, are enormous. I'll forever be grateful for him for that. But, yeah, that's uh, that's an easy one. Well, I like how quick the, the answer was, and you know, ho hopefully, an example of you know, you do something nice, and, and the rewards—not that you're seeking, but the rewards are also, you know, several fold. Well, I was going to say investment, but yeah, investment of some sorts, right? In the in the friendship and the opportunity to to trust, right? There's something there. Cool. That's exciting. The last last question is: uh, Look, are there any requests or announcements? Well, we covered some announcements. Any other announcements or a final advice for the Climate Torch listeners? 
Yeah, I uh, touching on some of our topics. Uh, I would tell everybody whether you're entrepreneur, aspiring entrepreneur, listener, working in a company, working in government, learn. Like climate science is ever evolving. The entrepreneurial space around this is ever evolving. I mean, you and I just talked about, you know, you're lecturing on ESG investing now. ESG investing in the financial markets is at scale a very new concept and it's still maturing every day. And so I, I think my message would be learn because once you're learning, you're going to find an area that you're passionate about getting involved in. You know, and if you're listening, you're probably already convinced that this is perhaps the greatest challenge of our time and maybe the greatest challenge we'll ever face as a species. And so we need people from all walks of life, from all industries, from all governments to get involved. And it doesn't mean you have to dedicate your career to it. It means maybe making some life changes. It means having the conversation and, and talking about it you know, openly and frequently. And so learning, I think, is the start of those conversations and the start of people getting involved. It's actually not much different than kind of political involvement, if you think about it that way. Learn, have the discussion, and more often than not, I think you'll find smart people that want to have an impact will do something to further the cause. And I think that's the most important thing we can do right now. And is there any type of person or group, whether that's, I don't know, folks that want to come change the world with the climate-focused SaaS or the kinds of customers that need these solutions? Anybody you'd like to speak to in these final final moments here? Yeah, I think... There's two parties that you know I'm I'm very biased in. To be fair, uh, technologists, right? If you think about just the economy as a whole, in the U.S. alone, we're facing a shortfall of something like a million software engineers, a million cybersecurity professionals. Not at all specific to climate. And so, if you think about how challenging it is for all industries to be hiring across critical technology roles, it's even more critical in climate because if you find the intersection of people that are experts in software, experts in data, and then working in climate, it's a very small number. And we need more supply of people building IP and, and valuable solutions in the marketplace for that. And the second is, you know, climate science is unequivocal that there is a, a smaller number of countries and corporate actors that are responsible for a huge amount of our emissions. So if you're involved in, in you know, high emissions industries, oil and gas, energy production, chemicals, right, agriculture, even if you are, you know, a small part of a very large organization, pushing the agenda to the forefront of the team, the, the organization you're a part of can have massive consequences, even when it might not feel like it. Creating a cultural revolution, you know, to, to make this a priority within those organizations, I think, is the only way that we get to the solution at scale. That's a great place to finish, man. We are all rooting for the success of Persephone and encourage folks to come check you guys out online. Until next time, Kentaro. Nice chat, man. Likewise. Thank you for joining us on the Climate Torch podcast. We appreciate your time and we know how valuable it is. If you want to learn more about climate finance, startups, productivity hacks, and occasional blurbs on things like stoicism or meditation or conscious leadership, all with attempts, underscore attempts, at humor and levity, then please consider subscribing to our weekly newsletter called Zero, which you'll find on Substack or the Entrepreneurs for Impact website. Or if you are a scale-up stage climate CEO or investor looking for a peer group to share best practices, expand your network, scale your business, and not be so lonely at the top, 
then check out our Climate Mastermind program at Entrepreneurs for Impact. Finally, if you want to draw more attention to world-changing climate CEOs, founders, and investors, then I encourage you to subscribe, follow, or rate this podcast. That, of course, makes it easier for new listeners to find and be inspired by these stories. All right, until next time, let's get back to launching ventures and growing businesses tackle climate change.